Casey Selsky's here. He fought with the FSSF at the Battle of Anzio. They were among the first Allied soldiers to enter Rome and liberate it from the Nazis. He's here today with one of his 11 children, the former mayor of Alito, Illinois, Mayor Lee Selsky. When Casey came home from World War II, like a lot of the genuine heroes of war, he didn't have much to say. He left the war on the battlefield. Forty years later, his family coaxed the stories out of him. And 50 years after his return from World War II, Casey and Lee traveled back to Europe, back to the places where he'd fought, to visit the towns that the force had liberated. Near the Anzio beachhead, an Italian man realized finally who they were. The man dropped to his knees crying and thanked Casey Selsky. Then he pointed to a plaque written in Italian and English trying to explain what this was all about to his own son. This is one of the soldiers, he said, who saved our village. It was 50 years after the war had ended. Casey Selsky turned to his son Lee and said, all these years I wondered what I was doing here. Now I know why we fought. The first special service force, yes. The first special service force were all volunteers. The astonishing fact is not how many of them didn't finish, but how many survived. They operated under cover of darkness, deep behind enemy lines, using unconventional warfare tactics in support of other units. Every mission was a suicide mission. Units suffered 2,300 casualties, more than 130% of their original combat strength, but it never lost a mission, not one. The first Special Service Force, The force existed for only two years, but its spirit lives on. The Green Berets, the Army Rangers, even the Navy SEALs and the Marine Force Recon Units, Canadian Special Operations Regiments, and in all of today's Special Forces. For decades after the war ended, the story of these Canadian and American heroes and how they helped save the world was classified top secret. Now we know. And on behalf of the Congress of the United States and freedom-loving people around the world, we say thank you. Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks, and on for this episode is former Canadian Special Operations Regiment soldier Wes Kennedy, and Wes is the author for Sports Vision for Shooting Performance, a guide for the combat athlete. Uh, you can get that book on sportsvisionforshooting.com or also on amazon.com. Uh, Wes is a former sniper uh, and he has some very interesting training methodology and uh, things that you can do to enhance your vision. And it's, it's very interesting stuff, and we'll talk about it a little more in this episode. Uh, Wes is also, he, he runs a uh, a company which specializes in training and preparing the uh, military athlete for special operations selections, whether that be in Canada or in the United States or, you know, the United Kingdom, uh, Australia, you name it. Uh, they they have very interesting and, um, you know, from from my understanding and background in fitness and, and 
nutrition. It's very good stuff. And they have had a lot of success in getting guys through these special operations selection programs through their their training methods. So, uh, and, and we'll talk about all that in the episode. But before I play the conversation that I had with Wes, um, recently uh, there's a, a guy by the name of Sean Naylor, and he wrote some books uh related to American Special Operations Forces. Uh, some of it was controversial. His most recent book was a little controversial. But overall, I think as a writer, I think he's he has a, you know skill as a writer, and um, he gets access and placement with uh, highly respected operators. So uh, he, there was a... Um, early on in the Afghanistan war, there was a a, a large battle... Um, called Operation uh, Anaconda. A, a lo- it was like large scale. There were a lot of different units involved. And, uh, you know, the short version of it is before the, the main assault force was going to enter into this uh, valley, special reconnaissance units from Army Tier 1 units and Navy Tier 1 units were sent up into the mountains to perform reconnaissance and to uh, call out enemy fighting positions and things like that uh, for air support. And so one of these units was uh, ordered in to a position, and one of the SEALs fell off the helicopter. So the, the, the helicopter pilots flew off, and the SEALs couldn't get permission to return for this, this uh, their fellow SEAL for not for a while later. So by the time they came back, uh they they came back into a pretty bad situation. And you know, there was a a long gunfight, a lot of them were getting wounded and with them was an Air Force uh combat controller. Now this Air Force combat controller, he was shot and he was wounded. And the the team leader of the special reconnaissance unit had you know under intense uh, enemy fire uh, under the, you know in the situation of everybody's getting shot and they're they're outnumbered and surrounded he made the call that this air force combat controller was killed and that they needed to get out of there so after so they ended up jumping basically off the mountain and uh, the team leader, a guy named Britt Slabinski, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, he led them, he led the team for another about, I think it was like six hours of a, they were in a, a, a six hour running gunfight with wounded guys. And he, and his, through his leadership, they were able to make it out. Now, Recently, Sean Naylor is putting out a he put out an article in the New York Times, and basically, the Air Force has some kind of new technology, and they're saying that through this technology, they're able to to reinterpret the video, uh, some drone footage, and that the uh, the Air Force combat controller uh, John Chapman was in fact not dead when they when the seals made their leap over the cliff but he was alive and and he fought 
and and killed a few people, a few Taliban guys, uh, until he was eventually overrun and killed. So a lot of people are now bashing uh, Slabinski um, over this incident. But to be honest, the, the video isn't very clear at all. And uh, there are some things that aren't concrete uh, in terms of what the video reveals and, and that sort of thing. So... You know, a lot of people have been bashing him, but I, I think it's very unfair to, to say, you know, that he left somebody behind, you know, ill-intentionally or not, when multiple guys were shot, multiple guys were wounded, they were outnumbered, and they were losing ground, you know, up high up in the mountains of Afghanistan at night, you know. So, you know, I, I just want to say for anybody who kind of felt like they can armchair quarterback the situation. You know, if you weren't there, I, I don't think it's right for you to to uh, call him out in any way, shape, or form. Now, on top of that, the Air Force is still working on this new special te- technology they have to reinterpret this video. Um, so with that being said, it's a possibility that we may get some guys on who were there that day and um and and they'll further discuss this uh situation so uh you know with that being said now i will get into the interview with west kennedy hey what's going on guys um right now i have the privilege and honor of being on with uh west kennedy and west is a former canadian special operations soldier uh west how's it going brother Great, John. Thanks for having me on. No problem at all. So, so Wes, you know, and uh, I would say in comparison to like American special operations units, uh, the Canadian equivalent hasn't been as like polarized and, you know, books and movies and all that. And, and I'm sure that's something that the, the operators themselves probably enjoy that kind of having that autonomy and, um, you know, not being so publicly known. Um, but for the people who do know about you guys, uh, the, the Canadian Special Operations Units are given a high level of respect because of their operational skills and things like that. And what's very interesting is the Canadian Special Operations and American Special Operations have a, a very similar uh, birthplace as there was a, a joint unit that served during World War II of Canadians and American commandos, essentially. And and I know that you guys trace your roots back to those units, right? Yep. Yep. You got it. Yeah, it was a joint Canadian-American uh, special forces unit um, that actually just celebrated their 70th anniversary, I believe. And, uh, and that was a World War II unit. Um, and both the Green Berets and Seesaw um, hold the colors from that unit um, to this day. So very similar, you know, Seesaw's capabilities and and mission sets are very similar to what you guys in the States or what the Green Berets in the States um, are designed to do as well. So Seesaw is a relatively new special operations unit in comparison to the Green Berets, correct? 
Definitely. Yeah. We've been around for 10 years. So we just celebrated our 10th uh, year anniversary. Um, and, you know, if, for those unfamiliar with, you know, the kind of roles that the Green Berets do or CSOR does, um, it's basically things like direct action um, or FID, so Foreign Internal Defense, which we call uh, DDMA, uh, Defense Diplomacy and Military Assistance, um, but very similar um, similar roles. And then, and then we also have um, we also have some other capabilities similar to you guys, like reconnaissance and long range mobility, that sort of stuff. Right. And the and CSOR was created out of a need to to meet operational requirements because I think before that it was only one special operations unit. Yeah, originally it was only JTF two. Uh, which would be the equivalent of, say, uh, CAG or DEB group uh, in the U.S. And I believe during the time, the early years in Afghanistan, um, they had uh, an operational need for uh, basically a supporting force. I believe they were integrating uh, some of your guys' rangers to fill that need at the time. Um, however, obviously we want to be autonomous and, and do that role on our own. So out of that, and I'm sure several other factors uh, that contributed, um, uh, our government decided that, you know, we needed a, a new unit to fill that gap and, and CSOR was what was created um, at the time. So originally we worked um, only kind of under the guidance um, of JATF2. And then on my first tour in 2009, or my second tour, but my first tour with CSOR uh, in 2009 was the first CSOR only tour. So we were completely autonomous, uh, operated on our own. And, um, and now we have the capability to do both. So we can operate on our own or, you know, within a, within a task force um, that could comprise CSOR, JTF2, and or our CBRN unit, CGIRU, uh, for the chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear capability, um, or our tactical helicopter squadron. Okay, so you guys have your own, like, special operations helicopter unit? Yes. Yep, 427, I believe, if I remember correctly. Okay. And so how long were you in the Canadian Army total? Eight, eight years total. And five years with CSOR. So I, I began my career as a combat engineer, CHEMO. Uh, I don't know if you guys say that in the States, uh, but that's our, that's our battle cry, I guess, I guess you could call it, or our, our greeting. And um, so I spent three years with them, did my first tour in Afghanistan as a, as a combat engineer searching for IEDs, or improvised explosive devices uh, for your audience members that don't know what an IED is, but, although I'm sure most of them do. Um, searching for IDs and just constructing, you know, defensive structures, um, that sort of stuff. And then came back home, was lucky enough to go straight on to CSOR selection, um, CSOR assessment and selection immediately after my leave, my post-tour leave. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be picked up and, and went on to course at that point and completed my career with them. Nice. It's interesting uh, that you guys, CISO, just had the 10th uh, anniversary because 
I, I believe Marsak, uh, the Marine Special Operations Command, has had their 10th anniversary recently as well. Um, yeah. And it, it was in a, I, I believe they were stood up in a similar fashion. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And they kind of had the, you know, the growing pains as well in terms of um, learning to operate on their own. Um, I think we know they had a little bit of um, difficulty at one point. Um, but it sounds like they're doing quite well now and have really developed into a quite a professional organization. Right. And it, you know, I guess whenever units are, are created, especially during a time of war, uh, you know, you learn those lessons fairly quickly, especially here in the U S when they, uh, cause I've, I've had a few Marsat guys on before. And one thing they spoke about was, uh, have being, uh, having access to you know these different special operations units where they can talk to some of these guys and 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 that helped them uh, kind of speed up the growing process. Uh, you know what I mean to learn the do's and don'ts and 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 things like that. So it, it's all interesting stuff. Yeah, definitely. And there's uh, actually you mentioned you know obviously we're a little bit more discreet. Uh, with our special operations capabilities in Canada uh, than you guys are in the U.S. Uh, however, there is a book that your listeners might be interested in that just came out um, by an individual named Colonel Burned Horn. I'm not really sure how to pronounce his first name. Um, it's called Shadow Warriors, uh, the Canadian Special Operations Forces Command. And it's a little bit of history um, of how we were stood up basically a picture book for the most part. There's not a huge amount of text in it, but there is uh, you know, a decent amount that kind of lays out um, and gives a, a glimpse um, into those units uh, with detailed information on, you know, Cansoftcom and uh, the commands evolution. So definitely um, check that out because they can get it on uh, Amazon, I believe in Kindle or hardcover or paperback. Um, but a great resource for people that are more interested in learning more about uh, about the Canadian Special Operations Command. Nice. So the Cansoftcom is is the entire command itself, right? Yeah, yeah. Which comprises of uh, of those four units. Actually, I think it's technically fifth because they have the the training center in there as well now. Okay. Okay. So so basically, the the two units would would cover like any range of special operations, like, like in the U S you know, the Navy SEALs and the, the Marines are, would be considered like the masters of maritime operations, you know? Um, but I, I guess since you guys don't have as many units, you guys would have to cover all like the entire spectrum. Of- yeah. And you know, as you know, um, you know, your, your SEALs kind of experienced the same thing in Afghanistan where their primary capability and, and strength wasn't, in high demand and, and therefore they had to, you know, kind of shift and act a little bit more as uh, you know, in a fit role, you know, like the green berets were. And, and so, you know, that kind of stuff changes. Uh, I'm not sure where it's at currently in terms of how much focus CISO or how much focus JTF2 has on things like maritime uh, counterterrorism. Uh, what I do know though, is we also recently, uh, the Navy stood up a new unit, um, called MTOG, so Maritime Tactical Operations Group, and um, and they're kind of taking the role. They're providing a bit of um, 
an in-between between, you know, a JTF2 capability and the boarding party capability that is found on most ships. Um, so they're a specialty unit that is focused mainly on, um, mainly on boarding ships. So like, like kind of boat interdiction type of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So Wes, after you came home and, and you got out of the army, um, you, you now have a company which is, uh, dedicated to personal training, to fitness, and then more specifically to training guys up who are interested in joining selections for for a lot of Western special operations units, not just Canadian. Um, and I'd heard you on a previous podcast, and I, I heard you talking, and I have a fitness background. So after I heard you speak, I'm like, all right, this guy knows what he's talking about. And um, and, I, and I thought that was pretty interesting. So can you talk a little bit about your company and, and how you guys have uh, made progress up to where you're at? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the company's Elite Training Programs. Uh, we're gonna actually going to be doing a name change soon. So if you're listening to this podcast in about six weeks, uh, the company will be named Axon. And it can be found at trainaxon.com, currently at elitetrainingprograms.com. And our primary focus is to, is to support special operations candidates in arriving as prepared as possible on selection. And we do that through um, sound strength and conditioning, um, programming online, uh, nutrition coaching, uh, and making sure that each individual has their own unique piece of, you know, mindset and mental toughness coaching um, that they need to move themselves forward. So you would, you would craft, like, let's say, like, let's say I signed up, right? And I say, I want to become a Navy SEAL. The the program would be uh, like crafted around my specifications. Yeah, exactly. So we have a couple different options. Um, we have our our membership site, uh, teamroomtraining dot com, uh, and with this we offer about you know sixteen plus different programs from an on ramp program to um, ruck based selection prep beginner, ruck based selection prep advanced. Water-based selection prep beginner, water-based selection prep advanced. We have strength and power programs, um, operator maintenance programs, um, and they all look slightly different. And uh, and then they get a little bit of nutrition coaching each month. Um, they get access to our community, uh, so they have that support. They can be surrounded by those kind of like-minded individuals over time. Um, and then they get a bunch of other digital training, uh, some books. Um, so that's our kind of a, a little bit lower level, but it's really it's pretty encompassing um, and to make sure that everybody can have access to good, solid sound strength and conditioning principles. Uh, and then I have my one-on-one -on -one coaching, which I limit to only a hundred guys and uh, a little bit more intensive, uh, very individualized. Like you mentioned, you know, you'd come in, we'd put you through a couple weeks of baseline testing, gather a ton of data from you. And then we sit down with them and kind of lay out the map moving forward, how long it's going to take, what they need to focus on. Um, and then it's it's really done on a kind of biweekly basis. Every couple of weeks we go in, write a new program tailored to them. You know, we're not copy, cut, pasting, um, but it's actually built from scratch for each person based on, you know, their schedule and equipment availability, um, how they're responding to the program, uh, what their goals are long term and what the timeline is for that. 
And, uh, and then we just work together over time. Um, they can contact me anytime to ask questions and uh, get feedback. And my intent, especially for that, you know, core 100, uh, as they come out on the other end of that, not only extremely prepared for selection, but also having upgraded their thought process um, in in all areas of their life. Yeah, you know that's one thing because for a number of years I was I was doing personal training and things like that, and um, that's one thing I always told people that when you're training at a high level and and you're training specifics and and you're really pushing yourself, you're not only training your body, you're also training your mind because you're you're learning about you know how to push yourself. You're learning about you know what your limits are, what your capabilities are. And I think it's it's an awesome way to train your body and your mind. Um, so w- what you said is you said you would you would get all types of data uh, about an individual and then write up the program. What kind of data is it that you guys collect? And 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 then you know what's some of the processes that you have to like create a program? Yeah, great question. So. Initially, we get them to fill out a uh, an onboarding survey um, so that we get the data that we need um, from them. So things like training history, um, um, nutrition history, medical history, what they want to accomplish, what their lifestyle is like. Um, so we get them to fill that out pretty comprehensive. Uh, and then more importantly, we get them to go through about a week or two of testing. And during that time, we're going to test a huge range of physical attributes. You know, we're going to test upper body strength. You know, we're going to test their one or max close grip bench press, one or max weighted pull up, test a hundred meter max dumbbell farmer carry, um, a 5k run for time or a three mile run for time. Um, you know, one or max back squat, we're going to test their single leg strength, their rucking ability, their swimming ability. Um, and so we're going to go through a fairly wide range of physical attributes. And by doing that and by comparing that to what we know to be true for what guys need going in and to be successful, then we just need to fill in the gaps and then we can actually build a program that's specific to them. Because if somebody comes to me, and they're doing a water-based selection, say Navy SEAL buds, and we do a 400 meter swim in the pool, no touching or pushing off the sides, and they're able to do that in sub seven minutes. I'm actually, even though they're going on to a water-based selection, I'm not. I'm just not going to spend as much time in the water with them, right? Maybe they're they're not that strong. Maybe their single leg strength is really weak. Maybe they can only do. 40 push-ups unbroken, so I'm going to spend more time focusing on those areas. Um, whereas if they come to me and, you know, that 400-meter swim takes them nine and a half minutes, well, okay, now we got to spend more time in the pool for that guy. So with the single leg strength, uh, doing, doing work on that would be like what, like working on single leg squats? Uh, yeah, it could be anything. Uh, depends on where they're at. Uh, I usually find for single leg work, um, variety really rules in that. So we have a couple testers that we'll use. Um, I really enjoy a, you know, a 10 rep max, um, front rack barbell walking lunge. Hmm. And, um, over time, I just want to see that get heavier and heavier, you know, upwards of, you know, 185 pounds. 
Uh, and if they're not there, then it's just a matter of breaking it down further, right? Maybe they, um, maybe they just have a weak core. Uh, maybe their upper back strength is low and they can't stay in a good upright position. Maybe their hip flexors are tight and so they're not able to stay in a good upright position. Um, maybe it's just their general leg strength that's not adequate. So you kind of have to, you kind of have to test the bigger pieces and then test some smaller pieces in the chain so that you can really assess like what is the weak link and what needs work. Because what most people do is they say, okay, I'm going to look at uh, the tests. I'm going to look at what I see guys doing physically. Okay. So he's shoveling stuff. He's doing a push up test. He's doing a running test. He wears gear on and their general methodology for training that is to just do more of that. Right. Like I see guys do pushups. So I'm going to do a lot of pushups or I see guys running. So I'm going to do a lot of running and it's an okay place to start, but it's really not going to result in the best or it's really not going to end up with the best results. Um, so we really need to have and educate guys to have a better understanding of energy systems and, and how the body works as a whole and how to further analyze, you know, what's not working. Maybe, you're trying to increase your pull-ups. So you say, okay, there's pull-ups on the test. I'm going to do more pull-ups so I can increase my pull-ups. Yeah, it works to an extent, but what if we test your grip strength and we find that that's the weak link in the chain? What if we test your elbow flexor strength and that's the weak link in the chain? What if we test your scapular strength and that's the weak link in the chain? So if we can start looking at those smaller pieces, then we can really attack that. Um, and guys can progress a lot quicker and avoid injury over time. Right. And, you know, that's an interesting point to bring up, like specifically on the pull-ups. Um, a, a lot of uh, gymnasts, at least in the U.S. that I know of, uh, you know, when they are kind of retire out of gymnastics, they get into rock climbing. And, um, and, you know, for rock climbing, you need really good grip strength. So you would have to do exercises to work specifically on your grip you know, a lot of pull-up work, that kind of stuff. Um, so you mentioned uh, energy uh, systems. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so there's three main energy systems in the body. You have your aerobic energy system, you have your anaerobic glycolytic energy system, and your anaerobic alactic energy system. So anaerobic glycolytic is generally... Uh, the new and sexy kid on the block that everybody wants to train, right? Usually people call it things like high intensity interval training, or maybe they call it by things like CrossFit. And there'll be some haters out there as soon as I start talking about this. I love CrossFit as a sport, um, but it doesn't actually, in my opinion, doesn't actually seek to really educate um, the why behind what guys are doing. Like if you take somebody and give them, if you take a beginner and give them anything, they're, they're going to improve, right? So a lot of people improve despite their programming. Um, and if you give somebody anaerobic glycolytic work, it's, it's really intense. It's hard on the body. Your body is going to adapt. Over time, though, as guys get fitter, they need more specificity. They need to be – their programming needs to be more dialed in to continue to move that needle forward. And with combat athletes, so special operations athletes, infantry, police, the jobs that they do, the work that they does is primarily aerobic in nature. Right. 
right? And so, one, we want to test all three of those, right? So we want to give somebody a 100-meter sprint for time. We want to give somebody a 10K run for time and a 60-minute row for time. And we want to give somebody a, you know, 60-second kettlebell swing if they can, if, say, this individual can do that movement correctly and has the strength, give them a 60-minute 60 second rather kettlebell swing for reps or a 500 meter row for time, rest one minute and repeat, right? So we want to test those different areas to see. And of course, all the energy systems are working simultaneously, but we can focus on one of the three in any given training or testing. And then once we do test that, we can see where the weak link is compared to what we know to be true for success on selection. And then we can focus on training that weak link. And generally what I focus on primarily is a lot of aerobic work. Aerobic work for selection. Yes. Aerobic work for selection and for the job beyond. Um, Because the other thing with aerobic work is the bigger your aerobic engine, the less likely you're going to tap into your anaerobic glycolytic system, which causes tightness it's limited in duration. Um, it taxes you a lot more. And if you have a big aerobic engine, you can recover that anaerobic glycolytic system faster. Does that make sense? Yeah. So just kind of like to break it down to, to, to where maybe people may understand it a little easier. The, the yeah. aerobic would be like long distance endurance type of work. It, you know, it could be, it could be, it could be five minutes of work. Um, it could be 10 minutes, 60 minutes, 90 minutes. You know, anaerobic glycolytic training is generally going to be within 60 seconds to two minute intervals. And anaerobic alactic work is going to be like, you know, a power clean or, you know, 100 meter sprint. Right. And um, exactly. And, and the. And, and and can you explain why you, you focus on the anaer- on the aerobic force selection? Because that's the energy system that's primarily being used. There's few tasks that have you going at such a high intensity and such a um, at going such a high intensity that it becomes glycolytic work. It's just it, you know I, it's tough to explain that to an audience that ha- doesn't have the experience and really looking at it and understanding what somebody would look like doing glycolytic work, but just know there's little to no tasks that are primarily glycolytic in nature. It's almost all aerobic work. Right. Like, like kind of long durations, uh, you know, like, like a long ruck, ruck march, let's say, or something like that. Even if it's a 10 minute run, even if it's a 10 minute run. Yeah. Are you going to be tapping a little bit more in your glycolytic system? Maybe, but if you have a big aerobic engine, you know, look at, look at uh, 800 meter sprinters, now we can call them sprinters, 800 meter runners, 800 meter sprinters at the Olympics, right? Perfect time. Olympics are on right now. So turn on the channel, look at an 800 meter runner's face after he finishes the run, right? Still a minute, 40 seconds of work. It's still really short. What does he do when he's done? Walks away. Yeah. Right. He's it's aerobic. Like he just walks away. He's good. You know, you take a look at, um, Somebody, let's say, in a CrossFit gym that just does Fran, right? Two minutes, 
30 seconds, three minutes, three and a half minutes, regardless, what do they look like usually when they're done? Yeah, they're, they're panting, you know, they, they can't breathe. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's it's hard. And obviously, we're kind of comparing, you know, an average Joe with uh, with an Olympic athlete. Um, but it's a place to start having people look to kind of determine, like, well, is this actually aerobic? Like, is this glycolytic work? And then figure out what they need to train in the gym. Right. And um, do you guys have like a, a a gym, or you you work at a different gyms, or how does that work? Yeah, clients work uh, wherever they are, right? So we work with clients in the U.S., Canada, uh, the U.K., New Zealand, Australia. Uh, some of them have home gyms. Some of them work on uh, work out at gyms on base. Some of them work out at you know twenty four hour fitness, good life, whatever. And we just work around that with them. Okay, so hey Wes, can you um aside from the website, like do you have like maybe an email address where people can can contact you who are interested in, in uh you know possibly prepping for selection or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. Guys can uh, email us at info at elite training and uh and we can point them in the right direction um based on their needs. Okay, and do you also have social media handles that you would like for the audience to be able to reach you at? Yeah, they can uh, they can follow me on my Instagram account at uh, at Wes Dash Ken at W E S Dash K E N. Okay, great. Um, you know, and and like I said before, when I I'd heard you on a previous podcast, and you know, you were talking about uh, selection and preparation and um, you know, as someone with a fitness background, you know, I knew right away that you knew what you were talking about and I thought it was interesting stuff. Um, and, and, and like you said, you know, people will have programs, um, and if you, if you start the program, you'll, you'll progress, but at some point you need to really know what you're doing to get to that next level. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I don't, um, I don't program for myself either. Uh, I know what I'm doing, but there's still the, the bias. There's still the bias in there and and I have a coach. It's easier that way. You know, I just had a a client that finished uh, selection and then he finished a clearance diver course. So he's a Canadian clearance diver now, which is about a year long course, um, very swimming intensive, similar to the Navy SEALs. And, you know, at the end of that, you know, we sat down and chatted about how he felt. Uh, handing his training off and it, you know it is it's kind of it's kind of daunting at first you're like man like somebody else is going to be telling me what to do like I already don't I already get told what to do all the time in the military I'm going to be giving away even more control and you know but he just he took it on he's like you know what screw it I'm not an expert at this like I want to be an expert at clearance diving I don't want to be an expert at strength and conditioning so he passed it off to somebody that did want to be an expert in that followed the game plan um, was successful. And once he started doing that, he found it was relieving. Like he didn't have to think about it. It was something that was off his plate. He wakes up, he just follows the damn instructions. He's like, okay, I got to get this from the grocery store. And then I got to eat this today and I got to do this workout. And he just does it. Right. And then he's able to put his energy on the things that only he can do, right? Say studying um, the academic piece for that. And so, yeah, it's daunting for guys when they start up, but um, usually they get some pretty awesome results if they embrace the process. 
Right. And, and, you know, to kind of touch on mindset a little bit for me, it's like, and then you'll, you'll hear a lot of people talk about this, uh, and whatever field they're in, it could be business, it could be sports, it could be soldiering. Uh, I just saw a video on Facebook, uh, where Usain Bolt, you know, he's the fastest man in history. And he was talking about the process where he, what he said was the race and the competition itself is the easy part, but it's the training daily, um, you know, getting up when you don't want to get up and constantly working out that, that that's where the glory is at. You know, that's where the champions are built or, or the, that's where people succeed. It's, it's in that, that process, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's funny, um, we'll put advertising on Facebook for our, for our free offers, you know, our free information, our free videos. And it's funny how many guys come in there with comments like, well, it's 10%, it's 10% fitness and 90% mental toughness, which there's actually studies out there coming out now um, that are telling us that we're overestimating grit and mental toughness. Um, Because think about, Think about what happens in that process, like you said, right? You go to the gym every day. You hit your program every day for 365 days. You actively and consciously choose exactly what you eat four to five times a day. You actively set up your lifestyle so that you can sleep nine hours a day. Like the discipline and mindset and mental toughness that comes from that is far more than you're going to get from doing like a tough mutter event once. Right. Like good for you. You suffered through three hours. Like you're completely discounting what it takes to do what you need to do and set up your life to be able to do that day in and day out for one, two, three years to prepare yourself. That's mental toughness. So when guys say, Oh, it's not, you know, it's not really your fitness. I've seen fit guys go through yeah, I've seen fit guys go through and not make it. I've also seen far more out of shape sacks. Not make it. <laughs> not make it, right? So guys, like it, we have this like, um, we have this perception bias. Like we see the one fit guy that didn't get picked up on selection. We're like, oh, it has must have nothing to do with fitness. Right. Like, no, man, there was 10 out of shape guys that didn't make it because they were out of shape. So. Right, right. It's interesting. Yeah, and you know, and you're absolutely right about, you know, that the process, um, setting yourself up, you know, being disciplined. And and to me, and, and I think to most people, that's the most difficult aspect of it. Like, uh, uh, you know, if you, you talk to a lot of people and, and like just people who want to be in shape, like not training for a selection or something. And a lot of the times people will say the most difficult part of it for them isn't the workout, but it's more about you know, the nutrition, you know, getting enough sleep. And, and like you said, that's where the real mental toughness, uh, comes into play, you know, and, and that's where you build, uh, character. That's where you build fortitude and, and, and all of those uh, aspects of that will fall under mental toughness. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so Westman, hopefully we can have you back on again. Um, you know, I, I had a, a great time talking to you. I'm I'm 100 percent sure uh, the listeners are going to appreciate this conversation that we had. Um, you know, and 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 like I said, hopefully we can get you back on, man. Uh, you, you have uh, some in, insightful uh, things to talk about. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Do you have a, uh, actually, John, do you have time to chat a little bit more um, about the book we chatted about a little earlier, the sports vision training? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Cool. So um, I think your audience would be super interested in this. It's something that's not really, um, there's not really a whole lot of this information out there. So I was, uh, you know, as I mentioned, special forces did the, did the fast paced CQB close quarter battle work. Um, did the direct action stuff, was a qualified sniper. And what was interesting is that at no point in my training did I ever get uh, training for my vision. Hmm. Um, I remember on my sniper course, we did a, we did a little exercise and I'll try and um, I'll try and explain it here so guys listening uh, can do this. And what this exercise was meant to do was determine, which of your eyes is dominant? Are you familiar with that eye dominance? Uh, no. Okay. So ideally what we want is binocular vision. We want both our eyes contributing equally uh, to the vision that's being, to the image that's being picked up and sent to the brain. Most people, however, have one eye that's more dominant than the other. And you can perform a simple little test to do this. Uh, look at an object that's about 10 to 20 feet away. You're going to hold your two hands out at arm's length and form a little triangle with your index fingers and your thumb. So your two thumbs are touching and your index fingers are touching, forming a triangle at arm's length. With both of your eyes open, you're going to use the triangle to frame that object that's about 20, 10 to 20 feet away. Now, keeping that object within the triangular frame, alternate between closing your right and your left eye one at a time. Okay, I'm, I'm actually doing this right now. Perfect. So what, what people will notice is that when you use your dominant eye, the object will remain in view. When you use your non-dominant eye, the object will disappear. So if the object stays in view only when you keep your right eye open, it means your right eye dominant. If it only stays in view when you keep your left eye open, it means your left eye dominant. Uh, can you tell? Yeah, 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 yeah. I can see it perfectly with my right eye, but when I switch to the left, I can't see it fully. Great. And so are you uh, are you a right-handed shooter? I'm actually ambidextrous. Okay. Do you normally shoot right or left? I would shoot left. Okay. So... Which is interesting. So unfortunately, which is great that you are ambidextrous. Unfortunately, I'm not. I'm, I was left eye dominant uh, in the military and I'm a right-handed shooter. So in CQB environment where I'm looking through a rifle scope, which is fairly close to my right eye, right? And, and we both know we want to have both eyes open. Um, I, can, I can still acquire that target through the sight with my right eye without too much difficulty. Where it becomes even more of an issue is with a pistol. So I have a pistol out at arm's length. I have two sights, right? I have my rear post and front post that I need to acquire and the target as well. And because I'm a right-handed shooter with left eye dominance, I have to kind of shift my head and do this kind of wonky shift with my arm so I can actually pick it up with my left eye. Uh, I see. And uh, what's interesting is that the only solution I ever heard uh, to this challenge was to start becoming a left-handed shooter. Really? <laughs> Fortunately, um, since I've gotten out, there's a whole bunch of 
um, stuff that I've learned. And it's actually quite, quite a bit easier to just train your eye dominance. And we're not trying to train it so I have same side eye dominance. I'm not trying to train it so I'm a right-handed shooter with right eye dominance or vice versa. I actually want binocular vision. I want to be able to pick it up and acquire that sight post easily with both eyes. And so in my book, um, Sports Vision Training on Shooting Performance, um, I lay out exercises to do this. I lay out exercises to expand your peripheral vision, right? Situational awareness is super important. Um, and I lay out drills how to speed up your target acquisition because, as we both know, first to see, first to shoot. Right. And and, and that's how I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. Uh, in the U.S., uh, in, in the Navy SEAL community, there was a, a legendary uh, operator by the name of Adam Brown. Um, I'm sure a lot of the audience will know who he is. Uh, there was a book written about him. And w one of the things that was very interesting about Adam is he had his dominant eye shot out during a training accident. And they were saying that he wouldn't be able to, you know, he wouldn't be operational. He wouldn't be able to continue on operations within the SEAL teams. And then he eventually, he made it through uh, DevGoo selection and went on to to, to serve in a, the Navy's uh, counterterrorism unit uh, with his dominant eye being shot out. So he he had to do a tremendous amount of training with his non-dominant eye in order to be, you know, uh, operations qualified, which is interesting. Right. Yeah. And, and with this, uh, with this sort of training, one, like anything else, it needs to be done regularly. Uh, it needs to be done consistently. And for some people, it, they can they can improve their they can they can create binocular vision within a matter of a couple hours. Some people it takes longer. Um, some people a little bit less time. Um, but it's it's quite effective at doing it. And it can make a, a huge difference um, for those shooters in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm not exactly sure what um, you know what because. You know, within all these units, new training and new ideas are constantly popping up and things like that. But, you know, if, if this isn't being discussed, uh, you know, for first responders, military, whatever, this is something that's important that people should train on. And I'm actually glad that you brought this up. Awesome. Yeah. And, and where can people get the book? Um, so they can go to uh, sportsvisionforshooting.com. So that's sportsvisionforshooting.com. Um, and there they can, they can grab a, um, uh, a copy of the first, first chapter and, uh, and it'll bump them over to the, their country's Amazon page as well, where they can pick up either a, a digital copy on their Kindle um, or a softcover copy as well that can be mailed to them. Yeah, that, that's awesome, brother. Um, yeah, so everybody go check that out. Uh, it's very important, especially for first responders for military um, or for anyone who has a job where you you, you need to focus and, um, you know, and, and, and do that drill that, that Wes just described. Because uh, when you were talking, I was doing it, and I'm like, am, am I supposed to be able to see with my left eye fully, you know? Um, so right. it's interesting stuff. Um, anyway, right. You know. All right, so you know, with that, we'll, we'll close out our conversation. Um, you know, I appreciate you taking out the time of your day to come on here, and uh, hopefully, we'll have you back on, brother. 
John, it was a huge pleasure. Uh, and yeah, I really hope, uh, hope we have another chat in, uh, in the coming months. Yeah, absolutely, brother. Great conversation with Wes. He has a lot of great information on increasing your performance, on mindset, on fitness. And also be sure, once again, to check out his new book, Sports Vision Training for Shooting Performances, A Guide for the Combat Athlete. You can get that book on Amazon.com. Just search for it there. Or you can go to the book's website, sportsvisionforshooting.com, and you can get your copy there. So with that, I will conclude this episode. My website is globalrecon.net. I have two Instagram accounts. The first one is IG Recon. The second, I would like all you guys to follow is Global Recon underscore Inc. I have a Twitter account. It's IG Recon. I have a LinkedIn account. Just so it's Global Recon. I will encourage you guys to subscribe, like, download, and share these episodes on iTunes. You know, share them with your friends, your family. And uh, just help get the word out. And uh, we'll see you guys in a couple of days with another episode. Peace.